It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. You may have noticed that everybody who's anybody is in Davos. I am not in Davos. I have never been to Davos. I have no desire ever to go to Davos. I mean, I'm sure it's a nice resort and all. It just always seemed to me, you know, ultra-rich people and the journalists who cover them getting together uh, and then flying off in their private jets and they're discussing, you know, how to deal with the problems of the poor and the middle class. There's something about it that's always just seemed very House of Lords-ish. In any event, as it's going on, and this is from Semaphore, uh, the new website that has a focus on global affairs. Uh, They've got a lot of reporters there. And former New York Times editor Jill Abramson writes a note to Ben Smith of Semaphore and says, you know, when I was at the Times, the guy who was editor before me, you know, he didn't want to send anybody to Davos. He thought the whole thing was a crock. After I left, she says... Uh, I noticed much more news coverage, news in air quotes, uh, in the Times of Davos, quoting the attendees and speakers. It does endless panels. Of course, the coverage was a sweetener to flatter the CEOs by seeing their names in the NYT so they would speak at high-dollar NYT conferences and, of course, get phony news stories from the conferences into the paper. It was and is a corrupt Circle jerk. I don't think I could say that on TV, but I'm quoting one Jill Abramson. And um, it is true, you know, that uh, any media organization that wants, you know, big name folks to come to their events, which has become a big money maker, especially uh, for newspapers and magazines that, you know, don't have the advertising that they used to, and many of whom are mainly digital now. Um, it creates a bit of a symbiotic relationship. Would you pull any punches in reporting on somebody who's rich and wealthy and how you might, and who you might want for your next conference? Anyway, I didn't mean to go off on a whole rant about it. I just thought it was a couple of funny quotes from Abramson. Kerry Sanders uh, is a guy I've never paid much attention to. He's an NBC reporter who's retiring this week. But when I watched the clips of Kerry Sanders... You know, he's one. You know, he's like a lot of these guys, the unsung heroes, in the sense that for 30 years at NBC, he is. I uh, seen him, you know, jumping out of airplanes, jumping into oceans, uh, trying to fly a flight simulator, um, going off to war zones, uh, being stuck in the mud. Um, he's just the guy who they always sent, and he was often funny, or brave, or you name it, and. I thought it was, it said something to me because he's not, you know, the most famous person at NBC or any of the other networks. Probably doesn't make the most money of, you know, the people who are the anchors and so forth. But he's the guy you send. When it, he said he'd been to 66 countries as well as all 50 states. So there were a lot of clips to show. Um, and the other thing I, I found interesting, there's a brief uh, interview with him at the end. And Kerry Sanders said that he is dyslexic. And it's trouble putting words together on a script, not just the spelling of it, but in the wrong order. So he says he chose this 
where he's sort of in the moment, you know, coming down in the parachute or rowing in the boat where the flood is taking place because he didn't need scripts. He could just speak. So little tip of the hat to him. I've avoided mentioning this the last couple days because, you know, maybe my taste in modern art is not so great, but I, I can't do it anymore. This statue in Boston made in tribute to Martin Luther King. I not only think it's it's a horrible statue, and I think there are a lot of people out there who agree with me, but I think it denigrates King. I mean, there's so many good artists and sculptors out there. Couldn't they have come up with something that would be more inspiring? I mean, it's hard for me to even describe on the podcast because you only see sort of a piece of his body turned back on itself. I, I just don't get it. Again, I may not be the world's greatest art critic, but I cringe when I see that. And, and, you know, if it was of some, you know, former governor of Massachusetts, then kind of who cares, right? But it's MLK, whose life and legacy we just celebrated. And look, maybe there's a whole bunch of people who say, no, you just don't get it, and it really is a wonderful tribute. But let's just say they're not the majority uh, online. Okay, story number one. The default setting right now seems to be House Republicans versus the Democrats. And it's hardly surprising because, you know, Kevin McCarthy and his troops have taken over and a lot of changes are taking place. And at the same time, sometimes you get down in the weeds on this stuff, which I'm going to endeavor not to do. However, uh, the White House wants to be on the offensive against the McCarthy House, So uh, one of its uh, spokespeople, Andrew Bates, told Politico that McCarthy should come clean about the secretive deals he made with hardline members that helped him land the job. Well, there was a lot of wheeling and dealing going on. Um, It is well past time for Speaker McCarthy and the ultra-MAGA Republican House members to come out of the dark and tell the American people in full what they have decided in secret. So McCarthy's position is he hasn't made any formal agreements, except that, you know, the conservatives would have a voice and would also, you know, perhaps have certain committee assignments, which I will come back to. Um, so one of the things they wanted, though, and they've actually been pretty upfront about this, was not to have these ugly marathon last 48 hours before the session, let's pass $2 trillion, and nobody knows what's in there. And this is coming up because the debt ceiling is going to expire. And I'm so tired of these debt ceiling games because it makes anybody uh, in a position to masquerade as a fiscal conservative when we're talking about money that the U.S. has already committed, has already spent. But in the end, they'll work it out. The government's not going to default. Or, you know, the government will default for a week and markets will get rattled and then they'll work it out. Uh, They worked it out under Trump. They worked it out under Obama. Uh, They have worked it out so far under Biden. We shall see. Um, but then you see the, um, the White House sort of broadening its uh, attack lines here. Um, for example, this legislation to abolish the IRS and replace more progressive income taxes with a national sales tax. Well, that actually is being pushed by some members. That's not going to pass, but certainly any opposition party would uh, be well advised to jump on that. Uh, also laying the groundwork for uh, the House to vote on a national abortion ban. I don't know where that's going to happen. Uh, 
Um, and they also argue that the debt limit crisis will be used to force cuts in Medicare and Social Security. Kevin McCarthy says that's not true. What is true is that both of those huge gargantuan entitlement programs are, if nothing else happens, headed to bankruptcy. So either they'll get bailed out once again, or changes will be made in terms of raising the retirement age, or other limits where people get less and less out of Social Security. And that has been going on for 30 years, and that's why the the rise of the 401ks, people would have their own retirement accounts and not just have to rely on Social Security. Oh, here's what Biden said about the IRS thing. It would also totally eliminate the IRS. It feels good, except it's all going to be sales tax. Go home and tell your moms. They're going to be really excited about that. Mostly, Biden has let aides and others take these shots. Um, but, you know, I think it's a way, at a time when the White House is under such extreme criticism and, and pressure, um, for them to punch back while not talking about the thing. And, of course, the thing is, as you all know, uh, the classified documents mess. And they're still going round and round and round with uh, Karine Jean-Pierre. And yesterday was particularly bad. Fifth straight day that Joe Biden did not respond to questions about this. He had the Dutch prime minister in for what's known as a pool spray. A bunch of reporters come in. They take pictures. The president and the visiting foreign leader make statements. And then there are usually shouted questions, and if they're so inclined, each leader takes a couple. It's not a formal bilat, bilateral press conference. But instead, Biden just sat there, kind of bemused look on his face as people shouted, yelled questions about classified documents. Now, I have a column today saying that this has raised doubts about Biden in 2024. And I start out by saying, you know, he was just piling up the political points. He was just on a roll with all the bipartisan accomplishments, plus inflation is coming down, plus leading the Western alliance uh, in defense of Ukraine, uh, while Donald Trump remained under investigation by the Justice Department. And then, boom, now the focus is on Biden and his mishandling of classified documents, not saying the two were exactly the same, but I think there's starting to be a growing consensus or acknowledgement that probably Trump won't be prosecuted as a result of this, that he got lucky, and that's not going to decide who's on the ticket on both sides in 2024. Um, Oh, by the way, here's Trump on Truth Social. Uh, He is blasting fake news media and crooked Democrats uh, for reporting that he had a large number of documents at Mar-a-Lago to make the number that Biden has look uh, smaller. Um, He said that um, documents were distributed to people, groups of people, and me. They would be in a striped paper folder with classified or confidential another word on them. When the session was over, they would collect the papers, but not the folders, and I saved hundreds of them. Remember, these were just ordinary, inexpensive folders with various words printed on them, but they were a cool keepsake. Perhaps the Gestapo took them, some of these empty folders, when they raided Mar-a-Lago and counted them as a document, which they are not. Okay, I don't even know what to say about this. This has been going on for uh, over a year, and now he's saying, I just have the folders and they're a cool keepsake. I I don't even know what to say. Uh, I'll let you fill in the blank on what you think. Oh, and here is um, 
Trump talking to David Brody on a show called The Water Cooler. He's unhappy with Robert Jeffress, a leader of the evangelical movement, uh, accusing him of disloyalty. There's great disloyalty in the world of politics. And it's not that Jeffress has come out against Trump. He just hasn't, isn't supporting him right now. He isn't supporting anybody right now. There's only one candidate. Nobody's ever done more for right to life than Donald Trump. And he said evangelical voters didn't fight hard enough during the midterm elections. Well, I don't know. Maybe true, maybe not true. Maybe the abortion issue hurt them. But I say this no matter what the ideology or political party of the person is. If you're blaming the voters, you're losing. If you're saying they didn't fight hard enough, they didn't stand up, they should have gotten out there, they didn't grasp the importance of it, and, and you know, libs do this all the time, then you're just deflecting responsibility and blame from yourself. That's all it is. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Well, I know you want to hear about number two. So, there's certainly suddenly a lot of um, media coverage for the fact that one, George Santos, got his committee assignments. He's on the Small Business Committee and the Science Committee. Somebody wrote on Twitter, uh, well, you know, he should be on the Science Committee since he's the first person to walk on Mars. There's been a lot of that humor online. Um, but these are, let's face it, these are D-list committees. Kevin McCarthy had indicated he wasn't going to put him on a top committee, and he did not. Um, at the same time, uh, but I love the New York Times, like, neither of Mr. Santos's two committees are seen as plum seats for lawmakers hoping to boost their profile. They are not highly regarded. Uh, he had initially sought either the House Financial Services or Foreign Affairs Committee. Well, he didn't get it. There's also some... Uh, hair-pulling about the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was stripped of her committees by the Democrats for some very offensive comments, uh, now has committee assignments, and she doesn't have any committee assignments. She has two of the best committee assignments, talking here about the Oversight Committee in particular. The Oversight Committee is you know, where a lot of the action is going to be, and she's on Homeland Security. So, you know, she told me in that interview on Media Buzz that uh, she didn't make a deal with Kevin McCarthy. Obviously, any committee she got was going to be improvement over the fact that she had zero, thanks to the Democrats. Um, and now she has these two, and, you know, I heard Joe Scarborough talking this morning about, well, you know, I never talk much about MTG because she was a backbencher and, you know, just wanted attention, but now she's a key player. in the Kevin McCarthy speakership. Uh, Scarborough will make another cameo appearance here, so let me move on. Um, also, Paul Gosar, who was stripped of his committee assignments, got committee assignments, but he didn't get the one committee he wanted, and maybe that has something to do with the fact that he voted against McCarthy for speaker like 12 times or something. It's the way it works, folks, called politics. Um, one more note here about George Santos. 
There's a disabled veteran. This is heartbreaking. The story really got to me. Who says that back in 2016, he was friendly with Santos. And that Santos scammed him out of about $3,000 that this disabled veteran was using, saving for an operation on his dog who was dying. And suddenly that money was gone. And the dog couldn't get the operation and the dog died. Now, Santos has been accused of a lot of things, but that's pretty low. Again, no formal charge here. This is the account by this guy. But if that's even half true, what? (sighs) Okay. Um, So the Washington Post has this piece about a section of the January 6th committee's report that never was made public, having to do with social media. And there's a lot of debate internally about should they just focus on Trump, et cetera, et cetera. So in publishing this story, it says that tech companies gave Trump, at the time, special treatment, especially Twitter. Former employees testified that Trump didn't play by Twitter's rules. They couldn't even use their normal sort of content moderation tools uh, to limit his tweets or track his tweets. And they warned senior executives, especially at Facebook and Twitter, according to former tech employees, that much more had to be done to stop coded calls for violence for that Stop the Steal rally. And this is obviously personal for Scarborough because he says, Trump kept using Twitter to accuse me of murder. And when we talked to them, Twitter at the time, we said that anybody else in the world saying this would have their accounts taken down. And they had no answer. And it was very clear that even though they were giving him preferential treatment, And it continued all the way through January the 6th. How significant was that? If you're not familiar with the story, without any evidence whatsoever, uh, Trump accused Scarborough of having some involvement in in the death of an intern or young staffer in his Florida congressional office, where he was not at the time, you know, two decades earlier, um, with no proof. I mean, the medical examiner came and said that she had suffered... Um, from something that caused her to fall, and she hit her head, and that's how she died. So one can see why Scarborough is on the alert for this sort of thing. Uh, hey, before I move on, what a grim and frightening tale there is going on in New Mexico. Now this guy, this Republican who lost his election, has been arrested on charges of orchestrating a plot to shoot up the homes of four Democratic officials in Albuquerque. I mean, talk about the fear of violence in politics and how it is spreading and how, you know, look at the Paul Pelosi attack, how members of Congress feel like not only are they potentially in danger, but they can't protect their families. So um, the guy's name is Solomon Pena. He ran for the State House in November, got clobbered, complained his defeat was rigged. Um, and police accused him of conspiring with four accomplices to drive past the officials' homes and fire at them. Pena, quote, provided firearms and cash payments and personally participated in at least one shooting. They, they intended to cause serious injury or death to people inside the homes. I mean, this is just really bone-chilling. Um, and the worst of those attacks um, has to do with a state senator, Democrat, named Linda Lopez, 
this happened on January 3rd, and that's the one that this guy, Pena, went with his, you know, gun-for-hire guy, um, fired shots into the home. What happened was the bullets went into the bedroom where her 10-year-old daughter was sleeping. Lopez told police she thought it was just fireworks. Her 10-year-old daughter woke up. Um, she felt like, she asked why her bed was filled with sand. And she realized that it was drywall dust from bullet holes that had awakened her daughter. So that's how close this was. Uh, can you imagine suddenly discovering that your daughter was in that kind of danger? Can you imagine being so sick and twisted, at least according to this arrest, that you would hire people for the express purpose of killing Democrats? And that's going to somehow make you feel better? I, I'm not quite seeing it. I just don't get it. You know what's interesting? And let's make this story number three. I've talked at length. You've seen it on the show. You've seen it in my columns about how the press has turned on Joe Biden over the, even his allies go on TV and say, yes, they mishandled it. Yes, they were sloppy. Um, and the press is angry, particularly the people who cover the White House because they have been fed misleading statements and no explanations. And it's just a classic, you know, well, we're on investigation, can't say anything. And it's BS, as I've said. But now, some of the most liberal commentators with the television perch are blaming the press as if it's somehow outrageous for journalists to aggressively pursue questions about classified documents, having to dated to the time when Joe Biden was vice president. So we're talking about, you know, these things have been sitting where they shouldn't be sitting um, for some six years now. And... You know, you're free, everyone's free to criticize the media. Coverage is too soft, it's too hard. But James Carville goes on uh, MSNBC and says, the national press can't help but make fools of themselves. It happened in Whitewater, it happened in the email scandal, and it's happening now. I can't stop these people. So Carville, who was, of course, part of Bill Clinton's winning 92 campaign, um in a year that the Whitewater scandal later eventually morphed into the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And, of course, he, was, he wasn't part of Hillary Clinton's campaign uh, during the email scandal broken by the New York Times, but he certainly was a strong liberal voice in, in support of her candidacy. He basically just says, you know, the press exaggerates Democratic scandals. And, but look what Republicans get every day. Okay, here's another example. Oh, on the same show, Joy Reid. The U.S. media may be unable to help themselves for clamoring for a chance to both sides these presidents, meaning saying they did the exact same thing. I think most journalists are not saying they did the exact same thing and are pointing out the differences, uh, the raid at Mar-a-Lago, the resistance to uh, re returning all the classified documents on the part of Donald Trump. But at the same time, uh, there is this sort of practical politics of it, which, as I was saying earlier, it's hard to imagine Trump being charged even if Biden did nothing wrong. It really muddies the waters. And then there's Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC, one-time Democratic staffer on the Hill, smart guy, right when this is, was just totally erupting. O'Donnell says, this is a day when the Washington press corps did their thing about trying to pick apart every word said by Joe Biden. 
or the White House press secretary about the classified documents found in Joe Biden's private possession while completely ignoring the blaring outburst of pathological lies by Donald Trump. Okay, well, is, would you anybody say that, that people ignored the Trump investigation, or I should say investigations? I mean, it's so, you know, even going through the list of uh, um, the Mueller probe, two impeachments, and on and on and on. Uh, this current Justice Department investigation, which is also about January 6th, which is also about classified documents. Would anybody say the press has ignored that, downplayed it, hasn't really uh, given it uh, much attention? Well, I don't think so. But if something new comes along that happens to involve the incumbent POTUS, then, of course, it's going to get heavily covered. And especially, it's, it's not like they're com- two completely separate things. It's not like uh, Joe Biden was found to have taken 100 boxes of paper clips because he didn't want to pay for it. And Donald Trump was found with 100 documents at the end, uh, uh, marked top secret or otherwise heavily uh, classified. And I wonder if we'll ever get to see a declassified version of some of these. Uh, you know, this obviously sparked a whole uh, national conversation about, you know, do we overclassify things? Are too many documents and papers classified and too much of a bureaucracy devoted to classifying or unclassifying these things? And so uh, I I just think to blame it on the press, because now the press for once uh, is being very aggressive with Joe Biden, who, by the way, you know, as I'm speaking, hasn't addressed these questions for five days who sends out his press secretary with, with nothing, no ammunition whatsoever other than uh, I would refer you to the, you, to the Justice Department, I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office when they're not commenting. Um, you know, it's such a one-sided view. Well, Biden's a good guy. He wants to accomplish good things. So it must be the press's fault. Why are they going off on him? And just think about, you know, it's hard to say, well, think about the way Trump was covered because Trump beat up the press every single day. Enemy of the people and all of that. But he talked to them, talked to them all the time. So it was, I, I often called it a love-hate relationship, almost a symbiotic relationship. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Go to number four here, National Review, piece by Michael Brendan Dougherty. And it has to do with something I just touched on earlier, which is how much is Biden's image over the what we know so far about these documents, how much, how much is his image scuffed up and how much does this raise questions about whether or not he is the strongest candidate for the Dems. So Doherty starts off by saying the normal people in my life, the non-political junkies, have started asking me if the Democrats are setting up Biden with this classified document scale. You know, I hear this. It, it seems far-fetched to me. I mean, they could obviously coalesce around someone else, but setting him up, you can't set him up unless he had some papers that shouldn't have been where they are. Um, they woke up shortly after the new year. Suddenly Merrick Garland is appointing a special counsel. What's going on? And so the Democrats are fearing it will be Biden's Hillary emails moment. The AP says Biden's political future is clouded by a classified document probe. His chances of winning in 2024 are getting more unlikely. He's just throwing around all these quotes from, you know, press coverage. The National Review piece goes on to say, I have no idea if Biden is being pushed under the bus, but it would be really stupid if he was. Even if Biden were 20 years older and started doing guest appearances on HBO as the crypt keeper, he would remain the best option for the Democrats. So what is this sudden discovery of Biden love? Well, 
what Doherty argues in this piece is the following. Um, Biden is never going to inspire Democrats the way Bill Clinton did or Barack Obama did. Um, but in an age of polarization, a lack of inspiration on one side implies a consequent lack of fear on the other. While it's easy to find this or that conservative commentary denouncing Biden as the worst president the country's ever had, um, the fact is that Republicans and Republican-leading independents have never hated Joe Biden or feared Joe Biden the way they hated and feared Bill Clinton and eventually hated and feared Barack Obama, whether because of his age or his affect. Uh, he does not inspire conservatives to reach for their sick bags. Um Biden is the reason the 2022 midterm elections didn't look more like 94 or 2010. Why is that? Partly because Biden does not strike the average voter as a member in good standing of the Democratic Party of soulless, upwardly mobile, overeducated millennial technocrats and identity politics tyrants. Take that. Those people kind of hate Joe Biden, the people on his left wing. And so this is a fascinating sentence right here. Biden's obvious frailty, his lack of vigor, is his greatest strength. It prevents him from ever being a utopian or appearing like one. It forces him to keep the implicit promise of his anti-Trump campaign that there would be entire weeks during which most Americans didn't even have to think about the president. Uh, He goes on to say once uh, he moved away from this, you know, he's going to be a combination of FDR and LBJ and seem, I guess, to he's saying to many voters, more moderate. Um, that was a good place for him to be politically. Um, Given Donald Trump's hostile takeover of the GOP, just to finish up here, Biden is becoming the candidate of normalcy. And he says, uh, I understand why Democrats are nervous about running such an aged and frail man, but if the alternatives are Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg, well, you're going to miss Joe when he's gone. I don't know that he's going to be gone, but... There is something to that. I mean, fear and hate are really, really strong motivating uh, factors in politics. And opposition campaigns devote a lot of energy, not to mention research, uh, carpet bombing the airwaves and all of that, to portraying somebody as, you know, quote, normal politician as being a really scary, dark figure who would bring us to the apocalypse. That's the kind of rhetoric that gets used these days. Uh, National View, at least in this piece, thinks that that is... Um, harder to do with the 80-year-old president. All right, number five. I don't usually do a lot of local stories here, but I'm so pissed off about this. Uh, The D.C. City Council, reading here from the Washington Post piece, voted yesterday to override a veto by the mayor, Muriel Bowser. She's a pretty good mayor. Um, She's not a crazy left-winger. She works with all sides. She works with the business community. So she vetoed an overhaul of the D.C. criminal code. And it was 12 to 1 to override Bowser's veto. And so the bill would, and this is just unbelievable to me, eliminate most mandatory minimum sentences, allow for jury trials in almost all misdemeanor cases, which completely clog up the uh, court system, reduce the maximum penalties for offenses such as burglaries, carjackings, and robberies. 
law enforcement officials have already expressed concern about this. And the city is struggling with a lot of things, including gun violence. Let me just read that again. Eliminate, reduce the maximum penalties for offenses such as burglaries, carjackings, and robberies. What message does that send? Carjackings are not so bad. Having your house robbed when maybe you're at home and you're in danger of somebody breaking in at gunpoint, not so bad. What? The politics of D.C. are kind of strange, especially given his home rule status, but Congress still gets to meddle. But the council is being utterly reckless here. The mayor did the right thing, but she didn't even come close to being able to defeat this veto. And, you know, it's important because it's the nation's capital. And people come here, and there's there's a serious crime problem here. There's also a serious crime problem in Chicago and New York and, and other big cities. But this doesn't sound like it's going to help. Hey, thanks for being aboard for the ride. I've really enjoyed our session here. Hope you'll subscribe to our modest little podcast. Um, I'm going to now start figuring out what to talk about tomorrow. But we tried to give you the waterfront today. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.